Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're going to jump into the scripture today, and we're going to read uh, a story, uh, a very fascinating story, and um, you might be familiar with it, but hopefully uh, it'll be very helpful to you today. So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we'll read it, I will pray, and then we'll get right to work. Mark 2, starting in verse 1, it says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the man, lowered the mat that the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would speak to your people. We thank you, God, for your word, and we ask right now that by your spirit, you would communicate your word to us. And we pray, God, that it would help us to know you and help us to know ourselves even better. And so, Lord, please use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This story tells us a couple significant things. It tells us about our greatest need that we have and then it tells us about a great Savior. So that, that's how we're going to handle this. We're going to look at these two main points here. Our greatest need comes in verses 1 to 5. Now, uh, just to, to gather in the context, if you think about what's going on, Jesus is starting his ministry, and so he's been um, preaching the word to people in his hometown area, in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee and places like that. And large crowds continue to come out and gather around him. And he was also performing healings along the way. And so he's doing that and there's, you know, he's gaining popularity. And um, in, in chapter one, it actually gets to a place where there's so many people that he begins to pray and imagine going somewhere else. In fact, in chapter one, verse 38, and right before it, the disciples were looking for him, but he had gone out to a solitary place to pray. And when they find him, they say, hey, everyone's looking for you. Let's go back to the crowds. Let's go back. And he says, Jesus says to them, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. This is why I have come. And so then he departs with his disciples, and he goes to these neighboring villages, and he's preaching and healing, and we, we hear about that all in chapter one. But then he comes home, and now everyone is excited about it. Look with me at verse one. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. 
So there was an excitement, there was this you know, exhilaration of he's here, the healer's back, the teacher's back, let's get everyone there. And they're gathering family and friends and marching out and over to find him and to gather around him. And the crowd begins to swell. Look at verse 2. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And here's what he's doing. He's preaching the word to them. Now that's encouraging to me. Uh, because preaching has fallen on hard times, but here, a couple times in two short chapters, we're reminded of the priority of preaching. That when Jesus gathers a crowd, he wants them to know the things of God. And so some of us might say, Cor, why do you read the Bible out loud at church? Boring. Why do you, commun- why do you keep pointing back to the scriptures and reading and rereading them? And my answer uh, comes from the scriptures. It's a conviction that has grown in me over the years. It's the conviction that even Jesus himself shares. It's the priority of preaching. That God has given us his word and that word is meant to be taught and explained to the people of God so that they might know him better. And so that's what we do here at our church. And so he preaches the word to them. And then what happens next is very fascinating. Uh, The drama unfolds and what we find is a man has a very prominent need that everyone is aware of. A paralyzed man is carried there and lowered before them, and everyone knows he's here for a healing. Let's look at it, verses 3 and 4. Some men came, bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man, carried by the four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that the man was lying on. There's this need that this individual has. It's a need to have his legs restored to him. And what, what the story is, is uh, kind of showing us here in this moment is that this man has a deep desire, and it's a desire for wholeness. It's the desire to be able to walk again, and, and um, that, that is on open display. I mean, it's very obvious. If, if the, the ceiling were to open up and somebody were to descend in here on a mat and you recognize, okay, this person cannot walk, the obvious thing that all of us would conclude is this person in this circumstance really wants to experience the healing that Jesus can offer. He wants his legs back. Um, I had, uh, both of my knees have been surgically repaired and I tore them doing action sports. Uh, The first one was like 15 years ago and I, I remember how absolutely devastating it was to get a surgery and then to not be able to walk for a certain amount of time. So much of my identity was bound up in the action sports that I was performing, and it was, it was a very dark and hard season for me. So 18 months ago, when I had my other knee surgically repaired, this more recent one, I was in a good headspace. I was emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy. I just felt like this is going to be an, a totally different experience for me. But then I had the surgery, And there's something that happens when you cannot walk and you're dependent upon other people. And by the end of, and you know, you guys were wonderful. The the church was very supportive. I got notes and um, gift baskets and all kinds of different care. And my family was close to me and just everything was going well. But after about two weeks of inactivity, of sitting there on the sofa, you know, I, I started to feel this devastation and this desire to be, Restored. So I got to imagine that a person who is paralyzed, who has lived his life in that condition, would feel very, very strongly about this. Is it possible that God could do something for me that would give me the ability to move my legs, 
to walk on my own. That desire, I think, is very evident. So one of the things that this is teaching us is about the deep desires of our hearts. And uh, I guess I want to ask the question right here, what is the deepest desire that you presently hold? What are the things that you are imagining these days that you really, really, really want God to do? What are the things that are obvious to other people? That if they were to think about you and, and what you want, they would know the desire of your heart, and they're even willing to help you with it, just like these men were willing to help their friend get to Jesus. What is the greatest desire that you have? And, and what this story tells us is that God cares about that desire, but he wants to do even better. He cares about the things that we care about, but he has an even better thing in store for us. Jesus, Jesus wants to give you far more than you can even imagine. In the words of the Apostle Paul, he talks about this, so that God is able to give us more than we can ask for or even imagine, and that's what God wants to do today. There are certain things that we think if, if it came true, life would be perfect, and Jesus is like, I hear you, I care for you, I'm going to deal with that, but I also want to deal with this greater need that you have. Now, also, one of the things that I think shows up here in the text, and this one is not so obvious, but I think it's worth saying, Often the point of our greatest pain and disappointment becomes a place of divine meeting. Now, this person who is paralyzed is hurting. He's suffering. But what we find here in this story is that this hurt, this suffering, this experience of inability to move becomes a place where, where God meets him. And I was thinking this week, what if this man, what if... Uh, we were able to talk to him today and we said, you know what, what if you could rewrite your story? What if you could go back and what, what if you could choose to write it however you, you wanted? Would you choose to have your mobility uh, and, and have, you know, have the ability to walk your entire life? If you could rewrite your story, would you change anything? And I was thinking this week, maybe he wouldn't want to change his story. Maybe the pain and the suffering and that experience of life, of brokenness, leading up to this moment with the Savior, maybe he would actually cherish it at this point, believing that that pain and suffering led him to that moment where he experienced something of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. I say that because that's also my take on it. When I look at my story, the, the, the hardest portions of it, the most discouraging portions, the places of greatest pain, I can now look back on it and say, it is there that I met with God. And I wouldn't rewrite the script if it meant that I'd be trading that opportunity. Often the places of our greatest pain and disappointment become a divine meeting space. Now that's easy to say in this moment, right? That's easy to say when you have your legs and when you're after the fact. But if you're in the throes of it right now, let me just suggest that Maybe, maybe all we need to consider is that God could do a redemptive work that would eclipse the pain you're going through. Could he not? What if God is able to do something that would take what you're going through right now and actually restore it and change it and use it for your own good? Now, Paul, again, he would put it like this. He says, um, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He looks at present pain and he says, look, I know this is weighty and this is hard, but there is glory coming 
And the weight of that glory will outstrip the weight of the current pain. And so maybe that is the case. So our greatest need is actually what God has come to do. And it's a spiritual healing. What we find in this story is that Jesus is looking at a man with, with uh, legs that aren't working, and what he wants to address here in this moment is a spiritual reality, a spiritual healing. And, and Jesus has a habit of doing this. He'll take an ordinary physical thing, and then he'll kind of point to the thing beyond it or above it. Like when he met with a, a lady by a well and talks about water and says, you know, can you, can you get me a drink of water? And then having received some water, he says to her, you know what? There is water that if you drink from it, you'll never thirst again. Okay, mind blown, right? He talks to her and he says, okay, we're looking at water, we're drinking water, but there's a spiritual reality here that I want you to be aware of. There is water that if you drink from it, you will never ever thirst again. That's what Jesus is doing here again. He's taking a physical thing and he's, he's looking beyond it. And he's going, you've come here for healing, but I want to do you one better. You want your legs back, I want to give you your life back. And so he is presenting this reality here that sin is a bigger deal than relief from suffering. Now he cares about both, but he's trying to show us something. Sin is a bigger deal than relief from pain and suffering. So look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. He looks at this individual being let down before him, and he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And he uses the word son, and it's a very endearing term. It's not, uh, it's, honestly, from what I understand, it's not even used that many times in the Bible. It's used in, another, in a parable that Jesus tells about a, a prodigal son, a son who goes off and squanders all of his resources and then comes home and the father calls him son. And here Jesus is looking at this man and he's saying, son, your sins are forgiven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am healing something even more important than your legs. I'm healing your sin. I'm dealing with this problem, this fundamental human condition of being estranged from God. Jesus is the one who is able to reconcile us to our maker. The thing that's actually broken, that, that is most in need of repair, is the relationship that we have with God. God made us, and we are made for him, by him, but sin is the thing that separates us from him, and Jesus has come to fix that. Jesus is the one who has come to fix this problem that we have. He says, your sins are forgiven, and he is prioritizing then this reality of spiritual healing. So, imagine with me again, uh, what if we were able to get this paralyzed man as a guest speaker? He's able to leave glory for a little bit to come chat with us, and we do an interview with him, and he's here, and we ask him some questions like, you know, if you could, like I mentioned before, if you could rewrite your story, would you? And I would imagine he'd probably say, no, I wouldn't, because it led me to my Savior. But let's imagine, too, if I ask the question, okay, how about this? What if the, on that day, when you were let down by your friends and Jesus looked at you and he spoke to you and he said that incredible thing that he said there, what if on that day you actually only got to go home with one healing, not both of them? 
If you had to choose between the spiritual healing that was offered to you or the physical healing of your legs, which would you choose? And I think he would say a million times over the spiritual healing. A million times over, having spent all this time in glory now, a million times over, I would choose the spiritual healing because that is the more significant reality. Jesus here is helping us to see our greatest need. We have desires, and those are legitimate desires, and Jesus legitimately cares for them. But today we're reminded of this one thing. Our greatest need in all of life is to be made right with God, and that is what Jesus has come to do. So let's just think about this and and, um, reflect on what is this saving work. And I'm going to fill it in with some bullet points, and they're not all here in the text, but I think they're kind of in the background. I just want to make sure we're very clear on what this saving work really is. One of the features of salvation is our acknowledgement of sin, that we have a problem that only God can fix. And that's, again, that's not here in our text per se, it's implied, right? He's being let down, and Jesus said, son, your, your sins are forgiven. And he doesn't say, what sins? That's not my problem. I'm here for my legs. He doesn't say, oh, you've got me all wrong here. I'm not, that's not my problem. I'm not a sinner in need of, you know, any help on that front. What I need is my legs to be healed. No, there's an acknowledgement of sin. Part of the saving work of God is when we recognize our need. A second feature of the saving work of God is when we recognize Jesus for who he is and what he does. To see him as Savior, to recognize his unique ability to do something about that problem of sin. Jesus himself would put it like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's a radical claim where he's saying the way to restoration is through him. And there is no other way. And so part of the saving work of God is when you not only recognize your need, but you recognize who he is. And you then place your faith in him. There's a a decision that needs to be made. There's a reality that needs to be expressed that you see him and you say, okay, if that's true, I'm going to entrust myself to his saving work. I'm going to believe in what he has come to do for me. I'm going to place my faith in him for the salvation that he offers to me. And and, uh, I hope that you have made that decision or will make that decision even today, but you place your faith in him, believing him to be the savior. And then the result is this restoration. You're forgiven, like we see here in the text. Your relationship with God is restored. You're remade. The Bible tells us that those who are in Christ Jesus, the old is gone, the new has come. We're remade. We're also made right with God. Our relationship is restored in the most significant of ways. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it like this. Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's the saving work that Jesus has come to offer. So are we treating Christ as a means to an end? I want him to do something for me, or are we seeing him as we ought? He is the end for which I'm pursuing. He's the goal. He's the treasure. He's everything that we need. So our greatest need is to be made right with God, and that is what Jesus has come to do. So secondly here, we see this awesome Savior in verses 6 to 12. In verses 6 to 12, our our attention now goes not from the, the man who's experiencing healing, but to the person who offers the healing, Jesus Christ. 
Now, the first thing that we have to recognize is that there is a concern here. Who is authorized to forgive sins? Now, the, the teachers of the law were sitting there, and they recognized this is a problem. If we don't get this right, we're, we're misreading the scriptures. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, they're, they're theologically accurate, but they're misunderstanding the reality that's in, in front of them. They understand that only God can forgive sins. God is the only one who would be, where it would be appropriate for him to say, you are forgiven. Let me try to illustrate this really, really briefly. Um, but imagine if somebody from our church family said, look, I don't like Cor, I don't like him, and, and there are things about him that I just don't appreciate in this ministry. And so then they go on this kind of crusade and they're saying things online, and they're saying, you know, things to other people within our church family, and this is not a true story, by the way. I'm making this up, but you can imagine what that would feel like, and let's just think if I got just raging mad at that, that I feel slandered, that I feel um, that the critiques were unfair, that it's doing damage, you know, to the reputation of this ministry and myself personally, and I'm just mad and, and uh, that relationship then between me and whoever that offending party is, it's, it's not appropriate. And imagine if you said, you know what? I'm going to go find that person, and I'm going to offer that person forgiveness on Corey's behalf. You're going to say to them, I forgive you on Corey's behalf. What would I say? Right? Probably, <laughs> probably something like, I don't. You might, but I don't. See, here's, here's the basic truth. When sin occurs, the most offended party in, in every circumstance is God. And if somebody is going to say, your sins are forgiven, they're really standing in the place of God, which is why the religious leaders are right to say, no, this is blasphemy. This human being is claiming to speak on God's behalf. He's claiming to offer forgiveness. Only God can do that. Now, that's accurate, but what if Jesus is God? What if Jesus is more than just an individual speaking on behalf of God? What if Jesus is God in the flesh? So we keep moving on, and we see that Jesus is aware of the thoughts of these individuals. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? So he's aware. Maybe he reads some of their body language, but he knows what's going on in their hearts. He's no ordinary dude. This guy knows what's going on with them. And so he now makes this comparison. And uh, it's very, very significant. But he says in verses 9 and 10, which is easier? Is it easier to say that the, to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So here's what he's going to prove in this moment. He is able to do exactly what he just said. And he's going to show that it actually works. I mean, this is a, an incredible reality, but, but if, if Jesus is going to say to any of us, I forgive you, there is an element in which we might think, how do we know that that worked? I mean, how do I know that my relationship with God is right? He just said it, but 
How do I know it's really going to come true? But here he gives evidence. Let's look at it. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of all of them, and this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, here's what's really incredible. Jesus is not only authorized to forgive sin, he's capable of doing it. And what this story tells us is it happens by his word, that when he says it, it comes true. That when Jesus declares something to be, it literally is. When Jesus says something about us, it comes true. We know that Jesus is able to heal our sin by a word, and we know that because we can see the comparison. He's able to heal somebody's physical body by a word. Get up, take your mat, and go home. And that happens in that moment. And in the same way, Jesus is able to say to you, your sins are forgiven, and you don't have to be anxious on that one because that also comes very true in that moment. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus is able to declare things as they truly are. It is effective when he speaks. So Romans 4.17 puts it like this. We're dealing with the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into being that were not. And how does he do that? By his word. So he looks at us and he says, here's your greatest need. It's a need to be restored in right relationship with God. I can offer that to you. And when I say it, it comes true. Your sins are forgiven. This is salvation. So our great Savior on display here in verses 6 to 12 tell us something about this man, Jesus Christ. And we can make three declarations about him. We can, we can say these three different things. The first is, Jesus is God. We're not dealing with just a representative. We're dealing with God himself. He is the one who can forgive sins. Jesus is God. The second thing that we can affirm after looking at this story, is we can affirm that Jesus can heal physical ailments, and more significantly, he can heal our sin. He really is a savior. And the third affirmation that we can make is that when he heals our sin, it is effective. It works. We don't have to be anxious anymore. Jesus is able to offer us a salvation that he himself has accomplished. Well, that's great news. So as we wrap up here, let's just reflect on what we've seen here and, and, and make sure that we're tracking together. So when we think about the story of the paralytic getting, getting healed, we, we're forced to wrestle with our desires. What are the things that we most want from God? Some of them are very legitimate and some of them are, you know, concerns today of brokenness that we're hoping that Jesus can put his hands on and restore and heal. But our greatest need, our greatest need is to be restored to God himself. Jesus is the savior that God sent into the world. Mark makes that incredibly plain here. Jesus is the one who is the savior. He's able to atone for our sins. He can take away the barrier between us and God and declare us righteous in his sight. That salvation that he offers to us today is complete and it is effective. It actually works. And so here's our responsibility then. We need to respond to it. We need to place our faith in Christ for his saving work. We need to trust him and receive the gift of that work that he did for us on our behalf. And so 
Jesus is our great Savior. Now, maybe you came in here with one agenda and you might be leaving with another. Just like that man came in with one idea and he left totally different. I hope that the Spirit of God right now in this moment will reveal to you the work that God is doing here today. So let's pray and I'll invite the band to come and we'll worship together, but let's spend a few minutes in prayer. Lord, we right now want our eyes of faith to be able to see clearly the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you for who he is and what he's done. Lord, I pray for all of us in here and those that are watching online that we would have a self-awareness right now, uh, an awareness of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And that we would see Jesus as the one who can heal not only the problems and the difficulties and the brokenness, brokenness in our lives, but can heal us of our greatest need, which is the need to be restored to God the Father. I pray that every single person who can hear my voice is placing their faith in that Savior, in Jesus Christ, and is experiencing all of the benefits of what he did for us. And then, Lord, I pray that you would... Um, Help us to respond in worship. Let us be amazed at, at him and what he's done. We pray in his name. Amen.